Hi, it's Shana here. Before this episode starts, I'm popping in with a quick reminder about our upcoming CEU on Thursday, May 16th on a person-centered approach to behavior management. School taught us a lot about ABA. However, the thing with ABA is that it's a science and it's constantly evolving. So a lot of what we learned back then doesn't always apply now. Today, we want to use a person-centered approach to behavior management, um, but what does that look like and how can our learners still make progress in this kind of approach? So join us live on Thursday, May 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time as Shira discusses how to use a person-centered approach to behavior management with your learners. This CEU is presented by our very own Shira Karpel. You can earn one learning CEU for ACE, QABA, or IBAO. Join us live at this event or to watch the recording asynchronously, go to howtoaba.com forward slash CEU. See you then. Hi, I'm Shira Karpow. And I'm Shana Gaunt, and we're board certified behavior analysts. At How To ABA, we provide practical resources, community, and support to ABA professionals. In each episode of our podcast, we will be having real conversations with real people sharing real stories about ABA. We'll share relevant strategies and actionable tips that will make us all better ABA practitioners. It's the ABA content you need that you're not going to learn in a textbook. Hi, everyone. Welcome. We are very excited today to be talking with Chris Collins, who is the executive director of Ability to Include. And we had spoken to Chris before, and we are excited to have him back and hear what he's been up to in the field. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Chris. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Um, Good to have you back. I'd love to hear an update. Tell us a little bit about um, what you do and what you've been doing since we last spoke. Yeah, so I think the last time we spoke, um, at the time, uh, the organization that I founded then was going by a different name, ABA Suncoast. But um, at that time, it was definitely a, a side project. And I was collaborating with um, a behavior therapy clinic and just getting them connected to philanthropic dollars to set up a desensitization clinic for um, dental appointments and haircut. And so we were able to get them all the equipment to set up that kind of mock. Um, we called it aversive activities of health and wellness. And that was kind of uh, the first time that I was like, oh, wow, this is, we can connect the philanthropic community to the ABA community, which is mostly private companies that are, you know, servicing our, our kids with ABA. And so, um, with the success of that, I was like, well, let's see what else we can expand this to. And, um, I was able to get some big grants and now I've taken it full time and I'm doing social skills groups through team sports. That's, that's my big one right now. Um, and I, you know, it's it, the kind of impetus of it was ABA exists and everything. I was coaching soccer while I was an RBT and it was back then I was like, man, we really should be using some more ABA behavior analytic, you know, strategies on the soccer field and practices, even just how we chain skills and um, drills. And so it was kind of that thought of like it, you know, behavior analysis exists everywhere, whether we want it to or not. And so, you know, recognizing it and then building this program around it. Um, and it's been really great working with young, younger kids, um, some on the spectrum, some with medical complexities that attend pediatric extended care clinics, and then some inclusion classrooms. So there's some typically developing kids mixed in too. 
So first of all, congratulations for accepting <laughs> those grants. That's incredible. Um, and also the social skills programming sounds phenomenal. Um, I was actually just talking to somebody the other day about that and how could we do social skills within basketball. So hearing that you're doing it within soccer and within a few other sports is phenomenal because having a group of kids with autism who are sitting around staring at each other isn't really social skills. Yeah. <laughs> what you really need is you need them participating in something and it's not always about having conversations with each other. It's about, hey, pass me the ball. Let's do this. Let's do that. And having conversation about a common thing that they're doing versus just staring at each other and going, hi, how are you? I'm saying this because I'm following a script. Yeah. And there's so much, you know, there's so many foundational social skills, even with that like language and conversation that happens, whether it's basketball or soccer that I think people aren't necessarily aware of. But if I'm going to pass you the basketball or pass my friend, you're orienting your body to face them and look at them. And that right there, I mean, that's a foundational skill in conversation is orient your body to look at them, make eye contact, see if they're looking back at you and yeah. like ready to, you know, get the ball. Yeah. So I know like something like what you're describing is an inclusion is a bit of a buzzword. Um, <laughs> how, how would you like, is this, how would you define inclusion? Is that how you would define your program? What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of, I like that you call it a buzzword because it is. And I think now um, just as autism is becoming more of a buzzword, I think the the field is getting saturated with that. And so, you know, for better, or for worse, the definitions change. Um, and I think, you know, how most people define inclusion is bringing children with special needs into a space typically occupied by typically developing kids or mixing those two populations together in any space. And my thought when I came up with this program, Early Childhood Recreation, was that it was I wanted to make a program that could be brought to any type of child with any challenges, whether it's and not even a diagnosis, but maybe, you know, coming from a low income home or going through trauma or going through foster care, that they've missed some developmental milestones. They could benefit from it. Children, as I said, in a pediatric extended care, and they have medical complexities that preclude them from even being in a education setting. They're with one-on-one -on -one nurses all day. Um, and then children, you know, with profound autism or any, any of those populations, but it's the same program. So even though they're getting it sometimes in self-contained, you know, clinics and classrooms, they're all doing the same program. And I think that in and of itself is inclusion, inclusion and a new way, I think, of looking at it, of bringing the programs and activities that a typically developing child has access to, bringing it to those individuals with special needs. And I think you're right about it. Just being about the diversity of a skill set is, is a good way to use inclusion. Um, I, I work in a kind of similar setting. And I think one of the downsides of the field of ABA is that it's become so specific to autism, whether that's because of the funding or whatever reason. And often you'll find these types of programs only include ABA, only include kids with an autism diagnosis. And then you might take one of those clients with autism and put them in a totally typical setting. And that's like a huge you know, leap to make. Well, what you're describing is let's take kids with different skill sets. Some of them could have, you know, a learning disability, an emotional regulation challenge, a, a sensory processing disorder, like for whatever reason, they may not all have the same challenge. But, you know, let's group them in a way that 
they would enjoy. They would feel like these are their peers or they would have someone to look up to with different challenges. So if one kid is challenging, is challenged socially, another kid might be challenged physically, but they could be great peers. Um, so we'll do that very often. And I think then ABA can expand from that narrow definition of like, this is exactly what we service to, you know, let's just give kids what they need and help kids with all challenges um, in the best setting for them. Um, so yeah, I love that you're doing that. Yeah. And that's actually a great point. I think of as we expand the definition of inclusion or, or figure out what it even means in the first place is so much of ABA as it's dictated by insurance companies and, and the main funding sources is in its nature, super exclusionary. Cause it's like, for many of the services aren't improved solely on skill deficits. It's like skill deficits accompanied by a specific diagnosis. And so it's like, well, you know, where, where is that then, you know, that you have a couple magical diagnoses that allow you to qualify for a service, but then there's all these other, um, like I mentioned, you know, if it's a foster, uh, family or a child from low income that has skill deficits due to their, environment and resources or lack thereof, shouldn't we be assisting them too with services, whether it's social skills or um, any other behavior analytic service? So how do you get funding for those things? Like you said, if the funding is so narrow. Yeah, well, and that's kind of like, you know, what I've been able to do is by establishing a nonprofit. And I'll say like, and for any anyone that's listening that has a private practice, um, if there's not or nonprofit organizations in their community, reach out to me, I'll help you. Um, but just connecting them with philanthropic dollars as a fiscal sponsor, which was essentially what my first grant was. I was, you know, that that was money in, money out. I was just a fiscal sponsor for a an ABA clinic um, to get them the equipment and everything they need and some um, assessment services paid for. But um, it's, you know, finding people in the community willing to donate, finding nonprofit grant making organizations, and then, of course, a middleman that can help you connect with those um, dollars because, you know, for those, you know, there still be restricted. There's still some scope of, you know, but there's flexibility because you get to make the pitch. It's your proposal. And if they agree to it, then, you know, you can build in that other stuff. Um, Cause I mean, so much gets left out even for the ones that qualify, like different, you know, activities of daily living or sometimes deemed not medically necessary. And I, with my own stepson, it's like, uh, I think it was a tooth, uh, teeth brushing program was deemed not medically necessary. And I was like, I can't think of anything more medically necessary. Wow. I've I had some mental at, issues. <laughs> I laugh at that when people say, oh, well, you know, that activity of daily living isn't important. And you're like, well, <laughs> A, it's toothbrushing or it's dressing or it's toileting. Um, but also it's important if it's not dressing or to- toothbrushing, say, for instance, it's sweeping the floor. Well, maybe that's important in their life because that's something that they like to do or a skill that needs to be developed based on the employment they may have or that they like to do. So yeah. it's interesting for sure. Yeah. And I really love, you know, the passion that you have. I think it's so important to have people in the field who are in it for the right reasons. Um, you know, it's kind of been taken over by the for-profit world. Um, and I love the, you know, bringing it back to what we're really about. And that's about like helping kids, families be as successful as possible. Um, so I appreciate, you know, everything that you're doing. I think it's really amazing. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, where you see the fields needing that kind of shift or that support. Um, you know, there's been a lot of changes in our field. There's a lot of things that we could obviously do better. Um, and you're really on the front lines of like making those changes. 
Yeah, I think, um, well, and it's funny you mentioned a lot with, with ABA, but even I think the fact that the BACB is ran almost exclusively, if not exclusively, by BCBAs. So, you know, where's that additional perspective? There's not, you know, and even if there is, like, there might be a parent on the board, I'm actually not sure, but I had a professor tell me if there's one, there's none, because that's just, just one token on the board doesn't really give that population a voice. That's just one parent. Uh, But that, including more parents, including more RBTs that are part of the decision-making process from the top down, um, and BCABAs too, for that matter. And I think, you know, we talk a lot, again, a lot about inclusion. We talk about inclusion. We talk about diversity. But where is that from the organizations that we're, we belong to? Do they have a collection of diverse voices that are guiding their policies and decision-making? Um, and not to be too critical, that might, you know, it's hard as you get bigger and bigger in a national or international credentialing organization, um, you're always going to have speed bumps and obstacles to deal with. Um, in your policymaking. But for me, I think with that, and in addition to not just elevating RBT voices, but I think they need to really get a clear picture and direction of where they want those direct service providers to go. Um, And I think, you know, you look at every other discipline, it's a two-year associate's degree or more. And, you know, I like that there's a low barrier to entry for RBTs because it helps with those people that maybe, you know, don't have the resources to go to school. But at the same time, the disparity between quality RBTs is so vast. And those are the ones that are with the kids the majority of the time. And to not have, you know, beyond not even having a higher entry level, but then fine, leave it like that. But maybe there needs to be more, uh, like required mandatory compulsory professional development like there is for you guys to maintain your your bcba status why is there not that for you to maintain your rbt status it's just an annual uh competency test that you've already done six times five times you know however long you've been doing it Uh, what i like though is that they have the requirement for supervision right so when i think when they first started it was you know you become an rbt and you can use those letters but now it's like no you need that supervision by a bcba or a bcaba Um, certain organizations and they're moving towards this now is that organizations themselves will say you know you need to maintain you know 20 hours per year to be at this organization of extracurricular or continuing education but you're right it's not a board requirement at this point in time um Funny enough, you bring that up. Shira and I actually just developed something called the Behavior Blueprint, and it's specifically for RBTs who are learning more about behavioral analysis. So it's not a 40-hour-a-week RBT course to get in, you know, and write your RBT exam. It's nothing like that. But it's, you know, once you are an RBT, or even if you're not an RBT, but you're onboarding with a company, you know, you can look at this Behavior Blueprint, and it's 20 hours, but it goes into, you know, what is autism, what is ABA, um, but also here's what reinforcement is. Here's what shaping and chaining is. Here's some activities of daily living. And here's how to teach them from a practical standpoint, not just what, you know, the textbook says, but here's how we as practitioners would teach that. Um, So, you know, we're, we've actually just in its inception right now, and we're, you know, giving it to a lot of BCBAs who have companies who have RBTs, who they need not certified, but who they need just more training. So either onboarding new RBTs 
or, um, you know, just that professional development. Hey, you know, you've been in RBT for a year instead of just writing, you know, or doing the competency assessment over again that you've been doing for six years, you know, take the 20 hours and hopefully you'll learn something from it. Right. Yeah. There's definitely a gap in the system of like that piece needing better trained staff. Yeah. And, you know, it, and it is good. I've noticed, I've definitely noticed a push, I think, for more companies that I'm aware of in my area doing more professional development for RBTs. But, you know, ultimately when it's not compulsory, there's always going to be bad actors that kind of bring the whole field down. Yeah. Um, but hopefully it's something, or maybe there'll be enough good actors. We won't need to worry about it. <laughs> always that 10%, right? The 10% who bring it <laughs> down and give it, give it a bad rep. Yeah, you're right. So, you know, if there was a BCBA listening to this who is doing similar things to you and wants to get, you know, more involved and run quality ABA programs, like what what would be your advice to them? Well, uh, well, if it's like connecting with funny, uh, funny, money. <laughs> um, funding, funding and money. Yeah, it was funding and money. If, uh, if it's that, you know, it's looking at your local community foundation will usually be a good spot to start and see what organizations maybe are providing a similar service or be willing to, you know, help be a fiscal sponsor for your services. Um, but if it's just improving themselves, I had a, uh, it was actually the BCBA that kind of recruited me into the field of ABA, you know, six years ago or so. And, um, she had just finished doing a supervision for a BCBA student. And when I was talking to her about it later, she, she said, if I could do everything differently, I would have had them go to, you know, a TBI clinic go into a school and classroom, maybe even see how it can be integrated into sports. And it's kind of like going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning about it's like narrow scope of what ABA is becoming known for and what people are going to school for is like, Oh, I'm going to work with children with autism, but there's so many other, you know, ways that it can be implemented and, and impactful too, not just like, Oh, you're doing, you're doing little things here and there, but it's impactful. And I think getting that sort of full and running a business, I think that's the other thing is, um, and I think you had a guest on recently, I, li- I was listening to some of the podcasts catching up and it was diversifying mm-hmm. um, and it was school, it's like school contracts and stuff. And I'm like, that's the kind of stuff I think BCBAs should be looking for is um, so many of them go into a sole proprietorship fresh out of becoming a BCBA. And it's like, well, how much have you learned about marketing or accounting or running a business? And so, you know, that would be my advice is just getting connected to that sort of stuff or someone who knows how to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important that we have such a narrow focus ourselves. Even we get into the field and we think, you know, clinic DTT one-to-one sessions, and that kind of takes over your life, but we have to think bigger than that bigger in like, how we practice, you know, moving beyond the clinic and going, doing more of the things like you're describing with, you know, the recreational programs and social skills and inclusion, um, and also expanding our skill sets that even if we are doing the clinical stuff, we're doing it well. And like, we know all of those other pieces that are involved. So I think that's so important. I agree with you. I had a conversation with a parent the other day, actually, and I said, you know, when your child is 20 years old and they're out somewhere, you know, nobody looks across and goes, wow, he knows all his feature fashion, feature function class, you know. It's like, wow, that guy is really put together. You know, he wears deodorant, you know, skills <laughs> are great, looks good. You know, it's not about, you know, oh, great. You know, you can name all of the American states or you've got your <laughs> FFCs or you can count to a thousand. You know, it's not about that. It's about everything else, right? Our field is still young. We have a lot of growing up to do, but we're hoping that, you know, people who are passionate will help make that change. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so people can find you at abilitytoinclude.org? Correct. Okay, and you said that you'd be happy for them to reach out to you if like yeah. questions or things like that. That is like sure. generous. Thank you. Um, well, it was so nice to talk to you again. Thank yes, you. Yes, you guys as well. And continue to do um, what sounds like the amazing work that you're doing and advocating for those kids and those families and, um, and the field. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining today's conversation. Wherever you get your podcast, please go and subscribe, rate and review so others can find out about us too. For more from How to ABA, including free resources and ABA materials, visit our blog at howtoaba.com. And make sure that you're following us on social media for more practical tips and updates.